Hello, boxing fans around the world. Thank you once again for joining us on another episode of Talking Fight, featuring Christian from the Friday Night Panel and his ongoing exploration of the Olympics, and, and specifically, boxing at the Olympics. What do you got for us today, Christian? Well, Graham, uh, good to be back after a long weekend, but it is uh, a couple of things that we were talking about last week, and what's something that just keeps coming up in uh, in our conversations, both on and off the air, about these big tournaments, and it's a lot of the logistics and the moving parts behind these tournaments, right? So, and, you know, can you do this on short notice, and what are some of these moving parts? So I came across this great article actually in the Globe and Mail this morning, and I won't go through the whole thing with you because we do get into very sports-specific, uh, you know, regulations for horses and equestrian, which we don't necessarily need to dive too deeply into here. But at least this will give you a bit of a snapshot as to what actually is going on as far as the behind-the-scenes infrastructure for our athletes here. Because long before any of Canada's athletes are going to be able to go, you know, vie for gold at any sport, that this Olympics, there is already a highly complex plans in motion to transport hundreds of team members, including horses for the equestrian events, as well as thousands of kilograms of gear, favorite food, team clothing, and boats. Okay, so there's a lot going on right now. So this is challenging at the best of times to get all the athletes and their equipment across the world to compete. But during a global camp pandemic, you know, which is become a bit of a head-spinning affair just for any kind of international travel, let alone shipping, this has become kind of nothing less than a Herculean task. For example, Rowing Canada started prepping in 2019 at the World Junior Championships in Tokyo, which gave the organization some valuable experience as well as insight into what to pack, how to get it there. And that's both for the games as well as their pre-event training camp that they'll be holding 50 kilometers away from Tokyo in uh, Sagamahara City. So when they discovered things like whole grain bread wasn't easy to find in Japan, team leaders took note of this and decided that they're going to be bringing bread making machines to the Olympics as well as the Paralympics so that they can bake their own. Uh, they thought, you know, thinking about how to deal with the extreme summer heat in Japan, they plan to bring cooling tubs and slushy machines. Wow. Uh, they'll be bringing board games in order to keep bubbled athletes entertained. Uh, maintenance tools, of, uh, you know, a variety of other items have also been packed onto three large sh shipping pallets. This is just for the rowing team. Uh, three large shipping pallets that will head to Tokyo ahead of the Olympics, which, uh, you know, start in just a few weeks' time. The Canadian Olympic Committee is going to be sending some uh, about 400 athletes to the uh, Canadian Olympics. Uh, sorry, that's going to be our delegation, uh, the Canadian delegation to the Olympics, and about 130 athletes uh, for the Paralympics. So they have plenty of experience sending people and their stuff to major games, even last minute following things like last minute qualifying events. Yet preparing for Tokyo has created some unique challenges, even for the most seasoned of logistics staffers. So the Canadian Olympic Committee, for example, has had to store uh, some 31,000 pieces of Hudson's Bay Team Canada clothing for that for the athletes since the Tokyo Games got postponed last year. Uh, you know, this is an array of items including denim, maple leaf shirts, red and uh, you know, red and white clothing. Now, this was all unpacked and hung by the thousands in a Montreal warehouse to protect against the collection of dust, must, or you know, other unsightly creases that before the world sees these things on Canadian athletes. So now somebody has to go in and repack all of this, thirty-one thousand pieces of clothing, and then ship it to Japan. In the past, the Canadian Olympic Committee and the Canadian Paralympic Committee have gathered gear and essentials uh, for their sports and packed them into sea freight containers and then sent one big Team Canada shipment a few months in advance of the Games. Uh, they sent 18 of those containers over the water in 2016 for the Rio Olympics. 
um, sending, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, sending that big Canadian shipment on a month-long journey over the ocean, though, carries more risks. And, and, you know, especially during the pandemic, you know, shipping-related delays or, you know, the game cancellation, there's just, there's a lot of, again, moving parts. So this year, the uh, Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee have decided to charter a cargo plane instead, which buys them a bit of extra time to pack, as well as a more precise, gives them a more precise arrival date in Japan. You know, like the rowers, Canada's other sports have packed all kinds of things that they're going to need to train and compete and feel at home in Japan. Uh, this is going to be things like, you know, medical supplies, tools, coolers, fans, cleaning supplies, masks, horse blankets, bike pumps, blenders, as well as, you know, those Canadian foods that are going to help them uh, perform. You know, things that they're used to, you know, protein bars, maple syrup, uh, you know, stocking up on peanut butter which, you know, that seems pretty normal. That's, that's you know, across all sports, everyone loves that stuff for the protein. And while many of these things are, are available in Japan, strict restrictions on the participants' movements within Tokyo are going to mean that they're not going to be able to get outside of the Olympic Village to actually shop for these things locally. So this shipment is much smaller, though, that should be said, than uh, the one to Rio was. Uh, but that's since with no foreign fans attending, then, you know, strict and with strict distancing rules in place, there's no need to bring big uh, shipment of hospitality items that the Canadian Olympic Committee would normally bring to entertain visiting Canadians as well as athletes at large gatherings. In total, approximately 260 pallets of inventory will travel by truck from Montreal to Chicago's O'Hare Airport and then fly on to Japan's Narita Airport in the coming weeks. And one of the monster challenges outside of just, uh, you know, the shipping of gear that these people are facing right now is flights to Japan have been changing and direct flights into Tokyo are hard to come by. Uh, for teams like, for example, uh, track cycling, whose athletes are likely going to be flying together with about 40 bags of checked luggage, and that's going to include bikes. Uh, connecting flights could spell major headaches if they end up on a smaller plane with not enough cargo for that, you know, to support all the gear that they're traveling with. Now, normally, sports federations are going to have a bit more flexibility about when and how they fly athletes to and from the games. But the pandemic has hit the airline industry hard and the number of available flights is, you know, that's in flux, that's moving day to day. Also, per game protocols uh, limit the number of people and athletes can only arrive in the Olympic Village in Tokyo between five and seven days before their competition begins and must leave within 48 hours after it's done. So for many, this is becoming really tough to find flights uh, within that tight window. Um, you know, knowing that uh, before they can even leave for Tokyo, each person also has to submit two negative COVID-19 tests within 96 hours of their flight, along with a meticulous 14-day plan of all uh, of all their planned destinations and who they will be interacting with once they're actually in Tokyo. So that's just a bit of a bit of a snapshot to give you an idea of just some of the moving parts. And you know, we've got a good-sized delegation headed to Tokyo with 400 athletes, but. When you start thinking about countries like the U.S., where they're talking about sending 1,400 athletes to the games, these are all plane tickets. You know, these are all, all these people have, need to get flights at the same time. Uh, and then people coming from all over the world. So it just kind of gives you a bit of an idea as to the headache involved. And another reason why these games are not going to get canceled because how much money has already been spent. A lot, of these, uh, a lot of this equipment is already en route to Japan from all over the world and making its way slowly around the globe, some by air, some by sea, some by land, I'm sure. Well, you know, as much as one can by land, eventually you're going to have to go air or sea. Japan is an island. But uh, 
just an, an idea of the headache. But let's, you know, we'll move away from the games. You guys are getting a good idea of that. Uh, let's get back into boxing specifically. This has been, you know, it's been a few days since we've been here. So uh, AIBA president, uh, Mr. Umar Kremlev, recently met with uh, referees and judges who are working at the ASBC Asian Men and Women's Championships, as well as the uh, referee and judges committee led by Mr. Chris Roberts. So the meeting was held in Dubai, as are the championships currently going on. And the AIBA letter call, uh, leader called for honesty and transparency and promised to support referees and judges in the coming days, saying AIBA will help uh, every member of its family, including referees and judges. You are the part of the world, you are part of the world of boxing, a part of our family. You are leading one of you are one of the leading directions of our sport, and you should be dedicated to strict AIBA rules and never violated. The strongest should always win. If you become an AIBA uh, judge or uh, referee, you should defend all athletes and represent honesty, not one single country. Should I hear about a violation, we will exclude you from refereeing and judging for a lifetime. Uh, we have to fight for total honesty. And uh, we will say farewell to all of those who are not on our team. We will also not allow anyone to accuse our uh, referees and judges of misjudging. We are reforming the refereeing and judging scoring system. New, uh, the new uniform for referees and judges will be presented shortly. And we will create courses in each national federation language on refereeing and judging. AIBA Secretary General Mr. Ustavankovic also said that the organization will welcome all ideas for that development, saying, I dedicated my whole life to boxing and I will die for our athletes if it's needed. We have to give each other a hand and work together as we have a common goal. We've already implemented open scoring, bout review, scoring systems are gonna be updated soon. Millions of kids are dreaming of becoming a champion one day and you are judging those kids. And this is a huge responsibility. You are our best referees and judges. You work with the best athletes, all is in your hands. We will show zero tolerance if someone is judging not fairly. One mistake can ruin your whole career. We trust you and you can trust us. We have started to write a new chapter in our history. Chairman of the uh, Referee and Judging Committee, Mr. Chris Roberts, added that while they uh, are working together with coach, the Coaches Committee now to uh, improve AIBA technical and competition rules, he called the development of the programs the key work that they're doing and wished good luck to all referees and judges at the upcoming, or I guess now ongoing, ASBC Asian Boxing Championships and for those taking part in the educational program in Dubai to certify new three-star uh, AIBA judges. So, speaking of the AI, not the AIBA specifically, but specifically about the tournament going on in Dubai, preliminary action has started. Uh, you know, has been taking place uh, across uh, well most uh, categories here: the men's uh, light flyweight, flyweight, bantamweight, lightweight, light welterweight, welterweight, middleweight, light heavy, heavy, and super heavyweight categories, with a total of twenty-three bouts being contested on the first day of actual matches. Iranian boxers uh, were able to take home four wins on the first day, beginning with uh, Amid Amastafa knocking out Kuwait's Ali Jassim in the opening round of the flyweight category, courtesy of a strong right-handed jab. Mesam Gishlagi uh, recorded a comfortable points win against Sumit Sagwan of India in the light heavyweight category, while Isan Ruzbahani beat Sultan Al um, Al Shamari of Kuwait in the lightweight heavy, uh, sorry, in the light heavyweight category when uh, their fight when their bout 
was abandoned in the opening round, which was a bit of a theme on the day. We saw a few of those. Uh, in the lightweight category, Daniel Shakbasha uh, won narrowly on points 3-2 uh, to two against Serik Temerzhanov of Kazakhstan. Afghanistan earned points, a points win courtesy of uh, Ramish against Marvin Tabamo of Philippines, Robert Tabamo of Philippines in the flyweight division, and uh, Malik Zada of uh, uh, Malik Zada won against uh, Baktovar Sazagov of Tajikistan in the bantamweight. Uh, sorry, in the bantamweight division. The country's other winner was Sultan Muhammad, who beat Bahrain's Abdullah Fadul Hamrat in the light welterweight division. Uh, when the referee stopped the contest again in the first round. Uh, three Mongolian boxers were able to uh, secure points wins with uh, Karku Ekmandak beating Sultan Alunami, sorry, Alnuami of the United Arab Emirates in the flyweight division. Orkan Tunglag beat, uh, sorry, Orkan Tungalag Unobold defeating Sajiva Nuan Kumara of Sri Lanka in the light heavyweight division. And Otgon uh, Batar Bayamba Erdin beating uh, Ridad Talib Jabbar of Iraq in the middleweight division. Tajikistan was also brought home three wins on the opening day of action, including in the middleweight category where Abdul Malik Boltav beat Faraz, sorry, Fahad Alomir, Alomiri Walid of Qatar. Uh, well, their fight was again abandoned in the first round. Again, it was a bit of a, a bit of a theme on the day. Uh, Sirovish Zhukarov beat Kyrgyzstan's Toksan Bekbolasan in the super heavyweight category, uh, as he also won on points. Uh, well, Abdurrahman Yakbov triumphed over over Sab Al Al Sadid of the United Arab Emirates with a walkover. Boxers from Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, India, the Philippines also won on the opening day's uh, preliminary bouts at the Grand Ballroom at the Meridian Hotel in Dubai. A total of 150 boxers from 17 countries are participating in this event, which is due to wrap up in and around the 1st of June. And we'll obviously be bringing you some uh, some more coverage of that tournament as it progresses a little bit farther into it. But a lot going on on the first opening uh, days, other than my, uh, my pronunciation of what was going on the first couple of days there. Uh, a lot of good boxing going on and a lot of things uh, looking forward to in this tournament. Some big names that we're going to start seeing uh, at the Olympics as well. Yeah, I happened to mention in your absence yesterday uh, some of the bouts, the initial bouts that were scheduled and that the boxing world was looking forward to. So it's interesting you bring up some of those names. I merely mentioned countries, I believe. Uh, so good on you. Uh, but it's looking good. Uh, I, I'm, the, one, the one question I had yesterday that I couldn't find an answer for quickly online was whether or not they were streaming uh, these bouts from from the Meridian Ballroom. Uh, now I've I was got you know all weekend long I've I've been uh, you know at a commission all weekend as you know uh, so I haven't actually gone through I will be looking for streaming you will be able to find something on YouTube somebody will be streaming this I have not seen an official stream that has been launched as of yet but if I do come across one I'll definitely let you guys know tomorrow morning. Yeah, cool. Wow, that was a excellent report. Thank you. But yeah, that's about all we've got going on for today. All right then, great. 
Again, things, things are pretty quiet on the European front as we're getting closer and closer to uh, June and Paris. So, you know, a lot of a lot of our European friends are going back into training camp at this point in time. But, you know, one, one thing, Graham, you know, this is, you know, a bit of an aside, but something that we haven't really been talking about um, or we haven't haven't well, we've been dancing around when we talk about things like COVID-19 vaccines um, and how that can impact the training regiment for some of these boxers because i know i think i think you're coming up on your second uh your second shot you know i just got my first shot yesterday my first dose of the vaccine yesterday and although i, I feel totally normal feel totally fine i do feel like i got hit in the shoulder with a sledgehammer today though the uh the bruising and they say it only lasts about a day or so but you know like the, the bruising in, in the shoulder area you know my one arm feels like it weighs about an extra five pounds and you know it 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 feels like it got hit pretty hard. So I have to assume that, you know, trying to get these uh, jabs into arms before an event, you know, as these guys are still training for events. Now they also have to try to time making sure that their athletes are vaccinated in the run up to Tokyo. But also, for example, you know, we've got a big tournament starting up next. Well, we got one going on right now. We've got another one starting next week or the week after when uh, in Paris, where you go, you have to make sure that these players, you know, they get their jabs but also that they have time to physically recover from that jab and keep their training going. Uh, Cause you know, again, mild symptoms just feel like I got hit in the arm, but you know, for some people they're getting flu like symptoms for a couple of days afterwards. And that can really throw a wrench into that whole training uh, regime as well. Cause we're going to be talking about really strict regimented training at this point in time, everything from diet to, you know, what time you're getting up in the morning. Yeah. Everything is regimented now uh, as we get this close to the games and major tournaments. So I'm surprised we haven't heard more about how things like uh, receiving the vaccine has impacted actual training schedules. Not sure how, how you, what your experience was like with that. Not that you're training heavily at the moment. It didn't impact my training at all. I'm happy to report and uh, indeed looking forward to my second shot as it won't impact anything that I do. There we go. <laughs> well, glad to have you back on the show. We missed you. Um, my commentary is not half as good as yours, uh, nor as well researched, but I tried my best and I'm, I'm glad you're uh, coming back and uh, feeling good, I hope, and uh, looking forward to tomorrow. I'll be here. Thank you. Thanks, Carl.